0: to take a Bible this morning and let's open it together to Second Samuel chapter 12. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, we'd like you to borrow our copy of the Bible. You'll find it on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 222, page 222 in our copy of the Bible or Second Samuel chapter 12 in your copy of the Bible. A couple weeks ago, uh, my middle son, Justin, who's 18, Uh I sent him on a Saturday morning early to take my youngest son, Jonathan, to a baseball game. He had to be there an hour early. And Justin was help coaching the team. So I sent the two of them off and I said, hey, I'll get my coffee and I'll be there. I'm just spectating. So I'll be there, you know, an hour later on time. So um, everything was fine. But I got a call a, a couple minutes later after they left from a lady at the bank down around the corner from our house saying they'd had a flat tire. Could I please come? So I jumped in the car. drove up there. Sure enough, they were on the side of the road, flat tire. And I said, okay, Justin, here's the deal. You take my car, take the other car. You go on out to the game. I'll sit here and wait for AAA to come and get the tire changed and do whatever. And if I get to the game, great. And if I don't, but you guys go ahead. So they took off and I was sitting there, excuse me, waiting for AAA. And I thought, well, when AAA gets here, they're going to need to get to the spare tire in the trunk. So I ought to go ahead and open the trunk, start clearing everything out so they can get to it. Oh, man. Opened his trunk in Justin's car. There was more junk than you ever saw in your life. Baseball equipment and old... And na- so I started making a pile on the side of the road. You know, stuff you're going to keep, stuff we're going to throw away. And <clears throat> really, and as I got down near the bottom of the trunk, I found this real official-looking piece of paper all crumpled up, thrown in the bottom of the trunk. So I got it out, and I tried to smooth it out, you know, so I could read it. And it was a Fairfax County parking ticket that Justin had gotten and just crumpled up and tossed in the trunk. So, I couldn't get to him right at the moment. So, um, so, when I got to the tire company, I started blowing off steam at the guy at the tire company about, can you believe this? Can you believe he did this? And the guy said, oh, he said, you ought to have him come talk to me. He said, I got a parking ticket in Maryland two years ago. He said, and I just, I just trashed it. I figure I don't need this. So when I went to re-register my car two years later, they caught me, took me to court, and the judge told me that I owed them $1,900 for a parking ticket. I said, good grief, what did it start at? He said it started at $50, and then they started adding $7 a day for almost two years to my parking ticket. And he said, I didn't even have the money. He said, do you realize I'm making monthly installment payments on a parking ticket? Now, when I was in college, I was a chemistry major, but we had to take a lot of physics, and there's a basic law of physics that I learned, and maybe you know it says this. For every action, there is an equal and opposite what? Yeah, you know it. Reaction. And this is just a fancy scientific way of saying what we all know, and that is that there are consequences to everything that we do. Now, folks, David is going to learn this in spades in the passage we have before us for today. And in my opinion, this is one of the most gripping passages in all of the Bible, and also a passage that has some huge lessons for us as Christians here in the 20th century. So I want you to come along and let's look at it together. This is not a happy passage. We're not all going to walk out of here going, oh, what a great passage! No. This is a very sobering passage, but a very important passage if you and I are going to keep the blessing of God operating on our lives. So let's look at it together. A little bit of background. Remember, we're studying the life of the great man of God, David. Now to quote the old nursery rhyme, when David was good, he was very, very good. But when David was bad, he was horrible. And David lately has been horrible. David has broken every one of the Ten Commandments that deal with your relationships with other people. Commandment number ten, he coveted his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba. Commandment number seven, he committed adultery with her. Commandment number nine, he lied to her husband, Uriah. Commandment number six, he murdered Uriah, and commandment number eight, he then stole Uriah's wife and made her his own. And yet, as chapter 11 ends, it looks like that God's asleep and David's gotten away with the whole thing scot free, but now, you know, chapter 12 comes. And here, it's a year later as chapter 12 opens, but God's timing is now ripe. And one night, David hears a knock at his door. It's his old trusted friend, Nathan the prophet. Paying David a visit that David will never forget the rest of his life. Let's look at it. Verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David to rebuke him. Now, can you imagine this assignment? Had you liked the assignment of being sent to David, the guy who killed Goliath, the king of Israel, and you got to go confront this guy. How are you going to do something like this? Well, I'm sure Nathan prayed about it and God gave him a wonderful strategy. Look at this. He comes in and he tells David a story. He says, now David, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other was poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep, but the poor man had nothing except one little baby lamb that he had bought. And he raised this lamb and it grew up with him and his children and it shared his food and it drank from his cup and it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. You know, David could have naturally identified with this. David was a shepherd. Certainly as a young shepherd, David had a favorite pet sheep like this. And so quickly, David begins to connect with the story emotionally, to let down his guard, to begin to sit on the edge of his chair hanging on every word, wanting to know what comes next. Verse 4, Now a traveler came to the rich man, Nathan says, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead... You know what he did, David? He went over and took that little baby lamb that belonged to that poor man, and he killed that lamb, and he prepared that lamb to feed to his traveler. Now, David was outraged. David went nuclear. David lost it. And verse 5, David burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And I'm going to make sure, Nathan, you let me know who it is, He's going to pay back four times the cost of that lamb because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Hey, has Nathan set David up or what? I mean, David has stuck his head right in the noose and now all Nathan's got to do is pull the cord, which he's about to do. Verse 7, And Nathan said to David, Can you imagine this scene? Here the two of these men are facing each other. And Nathan said to David, David, You are the man. You're the man I'm talking about, David. He said, David, here. this is what the Lord says to you. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives to you. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I'd have given you more. Why did you despise me? By doing what is evil in my sight. You struck down Uriah with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You're that rich man, David. You had lots of wives. If you needed to satisfy your passion one night, you had the women to do it. And if you would have needed more women, I'd have given you more women. But this man, Uriah, he only had one wife. And yet you went and took his wife. Your wives weren't good enough. You went and took his wife and then you killed him. You are the man, David, that I'm talking about. And with those simple four words, Nathan nails David to the wall, and I'm sure David sat sat there stunned, not knowing what to say, having condemned himself out of his own mouth. But folks, it would have been bad enough if Nathan had stopped right there. But you know what? Nathan doesn't. There's a lot more to come. Nathan goes on to say, you know what, David? God sent me here to tell you that because of what you've done... There are three consequences God's going to lay on you that you are going to deal with the rest of your life. And here they are. Verse 10, number one. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, David, because you despised me, says the Lord, and you took the wife of Uriah to be your own. The first consequence that God lays on him is he says, David, the sword will never leave your house. You say, Lon, what does that mean? Well, it means that David's family will experience nothing but turmoil and upheaval and crisis and conflict and tragedy for the rest of David's life. And you know, this is exactly what happened. David's son, Abnon, raped his daughter, Tamar. Tamar then had a nervous breakdown. Her brother, Absalom, then murdered Amnon. Absalom fled into exile and was estranged from David the rest of his life. A little bit later on, Absalom died while trying to pursue David and kill David. Then a little later on... David's son Adonijah disputed David's choice of Solomon as the next king, and Solomon then murdered his brother Adonijah, and on and on and on it goes. It was exactly the way God said it was going to be. The sword never left David's house for the next 20 years of his life. May I stop for a moment and say to you that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that there's an important spiritual truth here for you to consider... And that is that not only do we reap what we sow, but sometimes we reap what other people sow. say, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, would you notice that all of David's children reaped what their father had sown? And there are so many of us in our world today who are suffering today, not because of wrongdoing that we've committed, but because of the sins of parents or grandparents. Sins of alcohol or gambling or anger or incest or abuse. Sins of divorce and... Sexual sins and all kinds of dysfunctionalities that they use to damage us as people. And, and friends, unless that cycle is broken, we're going to pass those same kinds of damage on to our children. I grew up in a home like that. I grew up where I grew, where my grandparents had damaged my parents, and my parents damaged me. And I knew if something didn't change, I was going to grow up and damage somebody else, my children. And I remember as a young person saying, this is not going to happen. I'm going to break the cycle. I'm not going to do this to my children the way my parents have done this to me. But I searched high and low to find the power to break that cycle. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ came into my life that I found the power to break that cycle. And instead of becoming a person that passed on a curse to the next generation, to become a person that hopefully instead started a new cycle, a cycle that passed on a blessing to three and four generations after me. If you're here, and you've been suffering, and you're in pain, and your life has been damaged, not by what you did, but by what previous generations have done, I'm here to tell you that you can break that cycle. You can start a new cycle in your life, a cycle that passes on blessing, but the only way you'll get the power to break that cycle, my friend, is through the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. That's the only place it's found. So if you're here, and that's your situation like it was mine, Let me just tell you where you find the power to break it. It's in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I hope you'll think about that. Hey, there was a second consequence David had to face. It's found in verse 11. Look at it. This is what the Lord says, Nathan goes on to say. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and I will give them to one who is close to you and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight You did this in secret, David, but I'm going to do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Now you say, what is God talking about? Well, friends, in the ancient Near East, when you deposed a king, when you overthrew a king, you would take that king's wives out, and in broad daylight, you would have sex with them. It was a way of saying, I have now taken over, and the kingdom is now mine. It was the ultimate insult you could give your predecessor. And so what God is predicting here is that from David's very own household, someone will rise up and will overthrow him as king and take his wives out and do that in broad daylight. Did that happen? You bet it did. His son Absalom overthrew him and did this. 2 Samuel 16, we're going to be there shortly, Had took his wives out and did this in broad daylight, just the way God said. Third and finally, verse 14, David says in verse 13 to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But, here comes consequence number three, because by doing what you did, David, you have given an opportunity for the enemies of the Lord to show utter contempt for God, to pass you off as being the hypocrite they always believed that the followers of God are, the son that is born to you in Bathsheba is going to die. Now, this, this boy was already alive. This is a year later. But God said, I'm going to take him. Did that happen? You bet. If you skip over to verse 15 and you read, you'll find that it happened. And um, exactly the way God said, these things came to pass. For the next 20 years, David's family was a nuclear fallout zone. For the next 20 years, David struggled with the guilt of losing that child because of what he had done. And his own son Absalom rose up and mutinied against him and tried to kill him. And you know what? David had nobody to blame for this but himself. And I wonder, the Bible never says it, but I I can't help but think there must have been many a night over the next 20 years when David would lay in bed, his heart heavy, and, and just lay there and think, gosh, how much different would my life be if only? You know, if only I could have put the tape on rewind and go back and not do what I did, just think how different my life would be if only, if only, if only... But it's too late. Now, that's the end of the passage. That's as far as we want to go in the passage. But it leaves us with the most important question. I gave you last week off, but I know you haven't forgotten. So what's the most important question? Ready? One, two, three. Wonderful. So what? You know, uh, there was one other thing that came out in that conversation I had with the guy who was telling me about the $1,900 parking ticket that I thought was fascinating. He said one other thing to me. He said, you know, when they took me into court... And I had to stand in front of that judge. He said, I got a tie on and I had a coat on and I was all dressed up and everything, got a haircut. He said, and I told that guy how sorry I was that I'd learned my lesson, that I would never do it again, I would never tank another parking ticket. And he said, you know what the judge did? He didn't make any difference. He still fined me $1,900. God said, I couldn't believe that. Well, you know what's interesting to notice right here, friends, is that David does the very same thing. Verse 13 says that David says to God, God... I'm sorry. God, I, I, you know, I've learned my lesson. I'll never do it again. I feel terrible about it. I've sinned. And did God forgive him? Sure. Look, Nathan says, the Lord has forgiven you. He's taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Do you believe that David was genuinely sorry for what he did? I do. Do you believe God genuinely forgave him? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. But friends, it's equally important for us to notice that David's child still died. That his son Absalom still mutinied against him. That his family was still a disaster zone for the next 20 years. And there's a piece of spiritual truth here, friends, that is enormously important, not just for David, but for you and me in our world. And here's the truth. As Christians, yes, it's true. God promises in the Bible that He will always forgive us and cleanse us and restore us when we confess our sins before Him. First John 1 John 1.9 When we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, that is true. However, however, nowhere in the Bible does God promise that He will automatically eliminate all the consequences of our wrongdoing, even though we confess them, even though we ask for forgiveness, even though we're genuinely sorry, even though we really feel bad about it, even though we promise never to do it again. God never promises that automatically He's going to take the consequences away. Listen, I run into Christians all the time who, who are considering going out and disobeying God, and they have the cavalier attitude of, oh, well, God will forgive me, I'll confess it, God will forgive me, it'll be okay. And I say to them, you don't understand. You just don't get it. It's not just that simple. This is like playing spiritual Russian roulette, what you're doing. Because none of us ever know when we go out and and disobey God whether we may be bringing on ourselves some irreversible consequences that we will spend the rest of our lives regretting. David did. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out here just a second. What about the mercy of God? I mean, what about all this mercy of God stuff that I hear? Friends, it's true. God is a God of mercy. It's also true that in His mercy... God often softens the consequences that, frankly, we deserve and we fully earn. I I know that's happened to you if you're a Christian any length of time. It certainly happened to me. God even does it sometimes when we don't even realize God's doing it for us. I mean, there have been so many times in my life where I have done stupid things that I knew after I did them, "Uh uh-oh, man, if this works out as far as it can go, I'm in big trouble. And God has stepped in in His mercy and has short-circuited it and kept it from going there. But I'll tell you something, God never obligates Himself to do that for us as Christians. And for us to assume that God always will is for us to presume on the mercy of God in a very dangerous way. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Apostle. I didn't want to see it for the longest time because I thought, ah, it's just Hollywood taking another cheap swipe you know, at us, and so I didn't want to see it. But a friend of mine saw it and said, "No, Lon, you're wrong, man. This is really a powerful movie. You know, Robert Duvall was nominated for an Oscar as Best Actor. You need to see this. So I rented it from Blockbuster, and I saw it a few weeks ago. And I want to tell you, it is a powerful movie. Duvall plays an evangelist who has a genuine heart for God, a real servant of God. But his wife's getting ready to run away from him. And so he goes to confront the young man she's getting ready to run away with at a little league field and he loses his temper and he picks up a baseball bat and he hits this guy in the head with a baseball bat and he kills the guy. Well, then he runs away. He leaves town. He takes an assumed name. He goes to a town a long way away. And when he gets to this town, he finds out there's no church there. So he he gets a building and he starts a church. And he begins ministering to people and caring for people and leading people to Christ and praying with people and helping people and really serving God. The church grows. He's making a real difference in the community. And then the authorities finally find out where he is. And they come in the middle of a church service and they arrest him. And they take him off to jail. And the movie closes with a scene with him out on a chain gang along with a whole bunch of other convicts cutting down grass on the side of the road. And, and he's leading them and singing hymns and praising the Lord. They're all out there singing hymns together as he's leading them. But he's got chains on and he's in prison. It's a powerful movie. And, and, and as, I, I, as it ended, I sat back in the chair and I thought, okay, now, now what's the point? And I don't know all the points, but certainly one of the points of the movie is, that, is this, that even for God's most sincere most committed, most hard-working servants, God makes no promise to remove all the consequences of what we do. And friends, it's a deadly mistake for you and me as Christians to assume that because we're trying hard to please God, because we're trying hard to serve God in lots of areas of our life, because we're having our quiet time, because we're praying every day, because we're trying to lead our friends at school or at work to Christ, because we're singing in the choir, or because we're giving some money to the work to the Lord, to assume that all of this gives us an automatic get-out-of-consequences-free card that we can just play whenever we're ready. Okay, I don't want those consequences. Here, play my card, God. Uh-uh. No, no, no. That's not true. Hey, ask Jim Baker. Ask Jimmy Swagger. Ask the Reverend Henry Lyons if sometimes God doesn't make us accept the consequences of what we do, even if we're trying to serve God. Look, I've got to tell you, as the pastor of McLean Bible Church, I harbor no illusions on this point. Friends, I know that if I were to go off and do something inappropriate with a member of the opposite sex, if I were to lie or if I were to cheat, if I were to steal, if I were to embezzle funds or do drugs or a host of other things that are disobedience to God, hey, there is no doubt in my mind it would cost me my ministry. No doubt in my mind. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind that I could not come in here and go, oh, just forgive me, and y'all would go, you're forgiven, and it's business as usual. I'd be disappointed in you if you did that. No way. And I'll tell you something. Before I do stuff, I try to think in these terms. You know, there's a verse in the book of Proverbs that says, by the fear of the Lord, people keep away from evil. And there's a lot of things that I don't do. I'll tell you, not just because I'm in love with God and I know that they would make Him unhappy. There's a lot of things I don't do also because I'm afraid of the consequences God would send on my life if I did. And that is not a bad thing. That is not an unhealthy way to feel. And I think a lot of us would make a lot, stu- a lot fewer stupid mistakes and would bring a lot less heartache on our life if we'd stop long enough to say, all right, what are the consequences God may bring on me? And by the fear of those consequences, I'm going to stay away from you. You say, Lon, I understand what you're saying about consequences, you know, but, but you know what? I've heard you say this several times before. I mean, what's wrong with you, man? Can't you come up with any new material? What's your problem here? Well, I've got to tell you something. I know I've said this to you before, and, and the reason I keep saying it to you again and again and again is because I keep seeing Christians right here in our church family go out and do some of the dumbest, stupidest stuff you have ever seen in your entire life. And then they come in my office their life falling apart from the consequences, it breaks your heart to hear their story. And I feel like saying to them there in my office, what is wrong with you? Are you completely out of your mind? Didn't you think before you act? Didn't it occur to you that these consequences might happen? What is wrong with you? But I never say that because the hole's already deep enough. You know what I mean. They don't need anybody to dig the hole any deeper. But that's what I feel like saying to them. And, and friends, seeing this happen year after year after year has taught me something about us as human beings. Even us as followers of Jesus Christ, it's taught me that every one of us is hardwired to do dumb, stupid stuff. We're all that way. I'm that way. You're that way. We're all that way. And that means that we all need to be warned on a continuing basis about the dangers of disobeying God, about the dangers of letting our human nature prevail and tell us what to do. And I'm not doing my job as your pastor and your friend to tell you this once eight years ago and never say it again. When you face this struggle every single day in your life, you need to be reminded. So I'll make you a deal. It's a fair deal. You stop doing dumb, stupid stuff and I'll stop talking about it. Is that a fair deal? And I find when I stop doing dumb, stupid stuff, I'll stop talking about it. But in the meantime, we need to be reminded of what the, uh, what the, the real issues are here. Say, so, well, Lon, wait a minute. I got one more question. And here's my last question. What if this? What if I've already done this? And what if this has already happened to me? What, what, what if I'm already carrying the, some consequences of some really stupid things I did disobeying God? And, I mean, is there any hope for me? Well, the answer is, friends, you bet there is. There's a wonderful verse in the Bible. Joel chapter 2, it says this. It says, God will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. And when I became a Christian, I felt like 21 years of my life could be pretty well characterized by a locust plague. That's what it felt like. That's what it looked like. Like 21 years was just eaten barren. And I held on to this verse. I made it my life verse. I said, God, as I begin a new way of living characterized by obedience to you, And and, and doing it the way you tell me, I'm going to trust you to make up for the years the locusts have eaten in my life. And you know over the last 28 years God has done that? May I say to you, if you're carrying some consequences that you earned by stupid things that you did, this verse is yours too. God will make up to you for the years the locusts have eaten in your life with the same proviso that you set out to live a lifestyle that is biblical and obedient And it's not like the genie in the lamp. God doesn't snap out and everything gets better. But the process begins of God rebuilding your broken world. And it'll happen. It'll happen. Because God is a God of mercy. Well, I told you it wasn't a happy message. I was honest with you. But it's a message we need to hear. Because it's too late once you come in my office and we're picking up Humpty Dumpty. It's too late then. Let's try not to break him. What do you say? Huh? Let's pray together. Thanks, Father, for talking to us today about real-life issues. There's not a single one of us here who every day at school, every day in the workplace, every day in our families and friendships are not tempted to disobey you. And those temptations are very real. And God, we need to be reminded continually... That this is not just about as Christians, in a very cavalier way, going, Oh, God will forgive me. No, this is about sitting and thinking what consequences we may be bringing on our life that we may have to deal with for many, many years. By the fear of the Lord, people keep away from evil. By the fear of the consequences you may send, this is healthy. And so, Lord, for people here today who may be involved in doing things that they know are disobedient to you, and so far you've been merciful and you haven't dropped any kind of hammer on them, or for people here who are considering it, who are trifling with it and toying with it, God, speak to our hearts today deeply about the dangers of playing spiritual Russian roulette, and grant that instead we might set out on a lifestyle that is, is deliberate and calculated to be obedient to you. So that the only consequences we need to deal with are the good consequences that come from obedience to God. Lord, really speak to us at the depths where we make the decisions that we make and change our life. And for people here who are suffering the consequences of having done some things, I pray you'd give them hope. Give them the confidence that you will restore the years the locust have eaten if they're willing to set out on a deliberate program of obeying You. Now, Lord, we need Your help in all of this. Only as the Spirit of God takes our lives and gives us the power can we do this. So, Lord, may we call out to You for that power and depend on You for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.